The Old Testament is recorded in Numbers chapter 11, beginning verse 4. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed, if only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat, and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day, or two days, or five, ten, or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wailed before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, Here am I among 600,000 men on foot. And you say, I will give them meat to eat for a whole month? Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? Here ends the Old Testament. The epistle reading is recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning verse 54. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lies in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision The reading got switched. How's that? I did. I'm going to read that. want to read that? Go ahead. Read the rest of that one. <clears throat> Let's see here. Um, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. But when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature... God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. (laughs) This second epistle reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54 When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Here ends the second epistle. We stand for the Holy Gospel. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, chapter 21, beginning the first verse. 
Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There was fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Here ends the Holy Gospel. Okay, all you little fishies. That's what they called themselves in the early church. All God's people were called little fishies. So I'm not, there must be a fish story coming here. Do all you guys fish? Looks like none of them do. I thought about getting a real fish, but that wouldn't have been good because I needed an old, dead, stinky fish. Fish. Fish? Close enough? So none of you fish. I didn't either, at least as little as I could. Grandmas and grandpas fish? Okay, anybody out there fish? Oh, there we go. That's pretty good. Okay, now, fish. Right? In the early church, it wasn't legal to be a follower of Jesus. So the early Christians used old, dead, stinky fish. So other Christians could find where they're going to be meeting. It was a secret. Now, on the bulletin cover, 
There's a picture of a boat and a big fish. And then something down below that, it's in ancient Greek, ichthys. The letters stand for Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. So the word for fish was kind of a symbol for Jesus. And they would do this. I'd hate to be the guy doing it. But somebody with an old dead fish would be walking along through town. Would you like to follow a guy with an old dead fish? No, because it would what? Stink. Yeah, so people kind of left the guy with the fish alone. But he would very carefully at one point lay the dead stinky fish down. And the fish is pointing a certain direction and nobody's going to pick it up because it stinks. In fact, other Christians could smell the dead fish. They'd go over, they'd leave it there. And they'd go along the same path, and sure enough, there'd be another dead, old, stinky fish. And they'd follow the dead, old, stinky fishes through the town, because nobody else wanted to get anywhere near them. And this is where they found where the Christians were hiding. So the fish is a very ancient symbol of how you find where the Christians are meeting, where you're going to find Jesus on that Sunday using dead, old, stinky fish. And what did I say all of us were? Fish. We're all little fish, except we're living fish. So that's much better. So now you know the importance of fish. And now there's the special story with Peter, who is a professional fisherman. So you can go back. No more dead you want that? You can have it. Sanctify them by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. Our text is the end of John chapter 21. You may remember back in Luke's account, in Luke 5, Jesus used a similar event to call these professional fishermen to leave the business behind and to follow Jesus instead. Remember that there were so many fish that two boats almost were sunk because of all the fish. These men, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James and John, and two others not mentioned, had gone up north as Jesus had told them. You will also remember how Jesus had said to them the first time, I will make you fishers, that is, professional fishers of men. They had been celebrating Jesus showing up among them during this period. And there may have been some question. They went up north, and maybe even some of them tried to be fishers of men. There's no indication that that worked at all. They knew Jesus risen. They knew what he had said. Nothing was happening. Absolutely nothing was happening. In fact, so much nothing was happening that they were apparently running out of funds, running out of food. They're up north by the Sea of Galilee, and Peter has a really good idea. Although Jesus had declared 
Leave this stuff behind. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. They were now destitute. So when it says here that Peter said to them, I'm going out to fish, he doesn't mean to waste time with a rod and reel. He's not doing recreational fishing. The term in Greek means he's going back into the fishing business again. They're going to have plenty to eat, although it'll be fish. And if they're good enough at it, they can begin selling it once again, and this would be their livelihood. Do you recognize here that the apostles now have put being an apostle in second place? Their primary job would have seemed to be, again, they're going to be average workmen. Even the disciples that don't know how to fish are going to learn how to fish, and that will be job one, fish. Besides, this business of being fishers of men was not working very well, at least thus far. There's a danger. If you think your main purpose in life is your work, if you think your main purpose in life is to feed your face, to always have something, to plan for your retirement, to keep up your house, you get the idea. If you think that's job one, your life will be nearly empty. If that's all you live for, is for stuff and for merely staying alive, that's of no purpose at all. I do want you to work, though. In fact, I'm going to give you an assignment. Your work this week is to read slowly and painfully the book of Ecclesiastes by Solomon. He tried every particular work and labor that could possibly be out there. He didn't just theorize. He did it. He tried it. And in every case, he said, vanity or emptiness or worthlessness. Vanity, vanity. All is vanity, he said. A chasing after wind. If human work and labor is the only reason for your being here, Your life is absolutely worthless and empty. Such was the great tragedy of godless communism, where all of Eastern Europe was forced to have that notion about life. And it sucked the love and the soul out of everyone in Eastern Europe. I'll let you cheat a little bit. If you have trouble reading the entire book, I'll let you go to the very end, the final chapter, where Solomon comes to this, to the sum of all. What is the sum of all? To fear God. By the way, that's a term of faith in the Old Testament. To stand in great awe of God and also in greater wonder that he loves and cares for you. Fear God and keep his commandments which is to be done out of thanksgiving as a response. That's the summation of what makes life meaningful. Without God and those simple directions, it turns slowly into nothingness. If you doubt me, I invite you to go to the closest nursing home 
or go over here to Mr. Springs. Go there at the time when it's meal time. I will almost guarantee that there will be certain people who have been wheeled into the dining hall who are looking at their whatever that is that's been ground up and mushified before them and watch the empty expressions of certain people in the nursing home. Literally for some of them, their face ends up in the mush. There's no purpose. I just got back from a special event I do every year. I take a retreat down to a, of all things, an Episcopalian, I almost said cemetery, monastery, to reassess things. At this point when I'm contemplating my end, that is of being a pastor, it scares me to a certain extent to even consider what in the world am I going to do next? Some relatives say, oh, go visit everybody. I'm getting too old to see some of my relatives. Oh, go out and have fun. I don't know about you, but when you get to a certain age, your bones don't have fun. You ache when you do too much fun. People have all sorts of ideas and suggestions about what they think I should be doing. Brother pastors are very unhelpful. They say things like, what are you retiring for? You should be a pastor till you're 85. To which I answer, my mind is going. I can't do the things I used to do. Is it possible to do your earthly work, whatever that might be, and still be doing it in such a way that it gives meaning and purpose to your life? That's a very hard question to ponder. Maybe some of you who have retired haven't quite figured that one out yet. But again, going back to Ecclesiastes, whatever you're doing, you're doing it in God's name, in God's fear, and you're doing it according to God's plan. And whatever God wants to make out of it, that's great. Otherwise, this Sunday is called rogate, which means pray. Did you catch the ancient intro it? No matter what you're going to be doing, the old intro it says from Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches the city, those who stay awake do so in vain. Whatever work that you're doing in God's name, step one is pray. Even if you know exactly what you're going to do and you've got it all figured out, pray first. Because without God's blessing, the whole thing can fall apart very, very quickly. The story is told about a guy who had no time for God. He was religious when he was young, but he found that didn't get him anywhere. So as he got older, he got sort of religious. 
God allowed his life to kind of fall apart, and at times he started using God's name a lot. Used his name a lot. Do you know where I'm going with this? But he wasn't praying. When things would go wrong or he'd stub his foot or something would go wrong, he would start to say, God, blankety, blank, blank. Oh, Jesus, blankety, blank, blank. That's not religious. Although, oddly enough, he spoke more God's name in that state than he ever did before. If you leave God out, you may end up there. Therefore, you have to put God into everything. When Peter went out to go back in the fishing business, he had it all figured out. He knew how to work the boats. He knew where the fish were. He knew the techniques. He knew how to make a good business. No problem. He's in charge. So this professional fisherman, together with James and John, also professional fishermen, they all go out, and you notice, like before, they caught zip. It's a lot of work to work the boats and the nets all night and then to come be draggled in in the morning with zip. They went out because they were hungry in the first place. Now they're pulling in in the early morning towards shore and their tummies are still growling. They trusted in what they can do. They did not follow what Christ had told them. They didn't even pray that he would bless this fishing expedition. Jesus is standing on the shore. The disciples don't realize it. He calls out and literally says to them, Beloved, you haven't got any fish, do you? Well, how's that guy know that? Who does he think he is? That should have been the first tip-off. Fishermen coming to shore in the morning should have had a big load of fish, yet this guy knows the reality. And then Jesus tells him to do something absolutely stupid that makes no sense whatsoever. Throw, literally drop your net on the right side of the boat as opposed to the left. Like what difference does it make? Maybe 10 to 12 feet of difference? Drop it on the right side of the boat and you'll have fish. In fact, you'll find a whole bunch of fish. Our real life is made up of this wondrous following of whatever Christ is saying, even though at times it doesn't make any sense. Don't make the mistake of saying to yourself, I'll do whatever Jesus tells me to do as long as I think it's reasonable. If you think that way, you're very much like John Calvin, who also on one occasion said, unless I understand it, I will not believe it. To which Luther said, if you have that attitude, you really don't have much faith. Take God at his word. Do your work and your labor following his word. Everything's going to come out fine, even if you can't figure out how. This is the abundant life. As Jesus had said to them earlier, I have come that they might have life and have it even more abundantly, overflowingly. 
but it requires faith in God's promise. Jesus is being gracious to them here because they should have gone hungry. But they have just enough faith to try this thing anyway. And when they're done, what we're told, usually you would catch little bitty fish, kind of like sardines, of which they'd make them into a, a wondrously spicy kind of thing that they sold, called opsarian. But in this case, they got a whole bunch of big fish. Now, you might think that's great, but to these guys, this is a disaster. You can't make opsarian out of a bunch of big fish, big old fat fish. And they got 153 of them. The big fish, the only thing you can do with these big fish is fillet them and cook them over an open fire, which Jesus has already prepared. This is a warning that they shouldn't go back into that fishing business where they catch the little fishies and make this really good upsari and make lots of money. It's a warning, don't go there. That's not your purpose of life. But at every need that you have where your tummy is growling and you need earthly things, Jesus promises daily bread and in some cases, daily fish. He will continue to take care of you. His point for them is stay in the business of being fishers of men. Every earthly need I will take care of. Read the book of Acts and you'll see how true that is. But as for now, they're just astounded at who had shown up for them to give them their bread as well as this nice, fresh, filleted, pan-fried fish in the morning. What is your purpose in life? Not to feed your pie hole. Your purpose in life is greater and more significant that in everything that you do and say and how you do it and how you say it, you are a witness to others about Jesus Christ. That's what gives your life meaning. You know that you can be a witness to the living and risen Lord Jesus Christ and in every need that you have and in every need that any other people might have. You pray. You pray first. You pray often. And you trust in your Heavenly Father's care. And as He takes care of you, that itself is a great witness to the world. So I challenge you to find your real purpose in life. May it be as a humble follower of Jesus Christ, practically trusting through prayer in his care for you. Amen. And the peace of God that passes understanding will keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus until life everlasting Amen.